Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Uh, no housekeeping today, apart from a note to say that uh, Ricky Gervais and I are working on the third season of Absolutely Mental. So if you want to catch up with the first two, you can do that over at absolutelymental.com. And that's been a lot of fun. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Paul Bloom. Paul, I think, holds the record for most appearances on this podcast. I have lost count, but it's been many times. He is now a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and uh, remains a uh, emeritus professor of psychology at Yale. His research focuses on the psychology of morality, identity, and pleasure. He has received many awards and honors, including the million dollar Klaus J. Jacobs. Research Prize. Uh, He's written for Nature and Science and the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and he's the author or editor of eight books. Most recently, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And it's a very fun book, which we discuss in part. We talk about the, the role that pain and suffering play in living a good life. We discuss the connection between chosen suffering and meaning, the research of Danny Kahneman on well-being. We talk about the possibility of integrating the experiencing and remembering selves that Kahneman differentiated. Uh, We discuss moral motivations, the effect of parenthood on happiness, unchosen suffering, the asymmetry between loss and gain, Robert Nozick's experience machine, thought experiment, the value of pleasure, effect of altruism, valuing the future more than the past, the power of contrast, false ideals of happiness, polyamory, money and status, the role of the imagination, boredom, the power of apology, and other topics. Anyway, as many of you know, trying to sort out what it means to live a good life is one of my core interests. And given the nature of the topic, it's probably one of yours. And now I bring you Paul Bloom. I am here with Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for joining me again. Hey, thanks for having me back, Sam. So you have this habit of writing very interesting books on topics that um, are sort of hiding in plain sight. The last book, which I'm, I'm sure we discussed, I'm not sure it was on our last podcast because we did several in that period, but your, your last book, Against Empathy, sort of brought the dark side of, of empathy, at least empathy as emotional contagion, into focus. And while that's something that it seems like many people should have noticed before you wrote a book about it, you're deciding to focus on, at book length on it, really brought it into the conversation. And uh, I would count your current book to have a similar property here. There's sort of an open secret component to these topics because it's not like they're totally unobserved. I think many people know much of what you're focusing on here, but they don't know they know it, and they certainly don't. They have never had a chance to see it in the context of current research on the mind. So there's really a pleasure in this. The new book is The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And um, I'll let you summarize your thesis there before we jump into it. What, what is the sweet spot? 
first, thank you. Um, thanks for having me on. And we, we did talk about Against Empathy. In some way, you could put these books in sort of a, a pair of ano- anomalous claims mm-hmm. against empathy in favor of suffering. This is kind of a, a different sort of book. Against Empathy was kind of pugnacious, saying that, you know, the, the way we've been doing it is wrong. We should do morality differently. This is more of an exploration of people's curious appetites and, and just, just, you know, a careful look at what we like. Mm. The case, I, I, when I started writing this book, I was just preoccupied with certain puzzles, which is why do people get pleasure from certain forms of controlled suffering? Why do we take hot baths, go to saunas, you know, do martial arts, uh, run marathons, go to scary movies, go to, you know, listen to sad songs? And I was really interested in the role of suffering for pleasure. And I was going to call the book The Pleasure of Suffering. But as I sort of got into it more and more, I realized that some suffering is actually not in the service of pleasure, but in the service of meaning and purpose. Mm. And so I ended up, you know, it's basically sort of two books in one. The first part deals with pleasure. The second part deals with suffering as part of a good life. And in the course of writing this, you know, which was a lot of, it was a fun book to write, but in the course of writing this, I sort of settled on a, a claim, which is at the core of the book, which you call motivational pluralism, mm-hmm. which is that we're after, we're after many things. We, we do want pleasure. Uh, you know, it's a hot day. We like a cool drink, but we also want uh, meaning and purpose. We want morality. Sometimes we want truth. Sometimes we want beauty. And my book tries to put this together through the lens of chosen suffering. Yeah, this is, this is so interesting because it's one of those topics that um, the fact that there's so much diversity of opinion on what constitutes a good life is... Um, pretty surprising given that the answer to this question is probably the most important answer we can ever find, right? I mean, there's nothing more tragic than a life misappropriated. And um, it's a little bit like, perhaps even more surprising because it's a much simpler question, the fact that there's diversity of opinion or basic confusion about what constitutes a good diet is also surprising. So we've, we've been on this earth for tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of years in in our current form. We've certainly had a few centuries to look at it carefully, and we're still confused about what we should be putting in our mouths on a daily basis. And we're even more uncertain about the recipe for a truly good life. So there's a a lot to consider here. I mean, some of the problems are, are definitional, and so maybe we should jump into that part first, or just the semantics of it, because we have words like pleasure and satisfaction and meaning and happiness, well-being, flourishing, eudaimonia. And, and obviously, these are, these are overlapping concepts. Yeah. Start us off with some clarification on terminology. Yeah. And, and you know, for each of these words, there's a lot of debate about it. People use, it, use the words in different ways. Happiness notoriously can mean very different things. Meaning is notoriously very vague, and I try to make it less vague when I talk about it. But, you know, let's start with pleasure. So, so there's an intuitive sense. Pleasure is what makes us go, ah, pleasure is, is my way of seeing it, a sort of short-term experience that we like, that we say, bring us more of it. And you contrast this with suffering or pain. You know, pain is the physical part of it, but also, you know, shame, humiliation, boredom, anxiety, disappointment. 
And you would think they're total opposites. You would think, you, you know, and, and in fact, you would think that you want the pleasure and you want to avoid the suffering. But it's a very interesting fact about people that experiences that are normally painful, that normally could bring you suffering and difficulty in all sorts of ways are what we sometimes want. Mm. And sometimes we want them because they're in the service of pleasure, like you know, BDSM, I talk a bit about that, or rigorous exercise which is difficult. In fact, it's supposed to be difficult. If it was easy, what would be the point? As well as sort of longer life projects that we take on and we say, this is, you know, we know this is going to be hard. But if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't matter. And, and this brings us to the definition of, of meaning, which is, you know, and I'm not taking this from a philosophical point of view, just trying to do this a priori. If you ask people, what's the meaningful experience? You ask people, how meaningful is your life? They answer coherently. It's a coherent question. And so we can look to see what they're, they're talking about. And they seem to be talking about experience, projects that are difficult, that take a lot of time, and involve struggle and doubt and, and uncertainty. They involve suffering of different sorts. And if it didn't involve suffering, it wouldn't be meaningful. Mm. Yeah, th one of the, the main problems here is that people are... Um unreliable narrators to their own adventure here. To some degree, we're always in the presence of an unreliable narrator, uh, or at least a potentially unreliable narrator, in several respects. There's the, there's the fact that most people, really maybe all of us, don't know what we're missing, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's certain experiences we have that we like, that we keep gravitating toward, and invariably there are opportunity costs associated with each of those, and we don't know how much better life would be if we had slightly different priorities or, or even vastly different priorities. So even, even in satisfaction of our desires, even what we imagine are noblest desires, even on those days or weeks where we're living exactly as we feel we should, Again, we don't. We just don't know what you know. How much greener the grass is on the other side of the fence that we can't see, and then you add to that all of the the failures of of memory and the problems in integrating memory with a an evaluation of just you know how happiness or or well being or the absence of suffering is accruing, and this goes to the famous issue that. Danny Kahneman ran into in his research on the experiencing versus the remembering self. Maybe you want to summarize that and then we can get into it. Because I think you and I have a different, I don't think you and I agree with Danny in his view of it, but he, he uh, perhaps remind us uh, what he thought he figured out there. Yeah, I mean, we could talk a lot about the general idea. We could be wrong. We could, we could say something's meaningful and valuable and worthwhile. And just be deluding ourselves. And, and just before we get to Danny, just want to point out that my argument is about chosen suffering. Mm -hmm. Unchosen suffering is a very different thing. I, I, you know, this is fresh in my mind because I, um, I wrote, it had an excerpt in my book in the Wall Street Journal, and I got an email from somebody who was furious at me. Hmm. He said, I live, I live in chronic pain. Who the hell are you to tell me this is, this is valuable as part of a good life? You know, screw you. And very angry. And I, I pointed out in a response, say, look, I'm not, I'm very careful. I'm not talking about unchosen suffering, chronic pain, your child dies, you have a horrible illness, your house burns down, you get assaulted. 
those are suffer that's suffering of quite a different sort. But at the same time, and building on what you're saying, we tell stories about that. We are very good storytellers, and it's a very natural narrative to say, this happened for a reason. This made me a better person. Mm. And I'm actually kind of skeptical about those stories. There's a, a whole literature on post-traumatic growth, which finds that people often say after a horrible thing, I'm better, I'm, I'm stronger, I'm more resilient, I'm kinder. But it turns out when you look closely, there's not much evidence for a real change. It's more of a story we tell ourselves. Mm. That's but, interesting. But let's, yeah, yeah. Let, let's get to that because that, that's um, I think that's important to uh, to explore. But let's table the uh, yeah. unsought suffering uh, until we uh, deal with the other requisites of happiness here. So yeah, to, yes. give me Kahneman on the um, experiencing and remembering selves. Oh, Kahneman's the coolest. So this is a Danny Kahneman, our our uh, our Nobel laureate in psychology, and you know, well deserved. Technically, a, no, a psychologist, but a Nobel laureate in economics, which is the only yes. thing he could, I guess, qualify yes. for. But, yeah. and, and somebody will jump in and say economics isn't a real Nobel Prize, right. and I'm just going to yes. steer clear of that, that ugly debate. I'll, I'll, um, I'll give it to them for, for the Peace Prize. That has been so devalued that uh, it's an embarrassment now. We'll keep, we'll keep chemistry, physics, and on some days, literature. Right. So Kahneman's done some lovely studies on our perception of our memories of experiences. and. He points out there's a difference between what you get when you weigh the actual pleasure and pain you feel versus how you recall it. So one of his findings is what he calls duration neglect. You have a miserable four-hour flight where you have nothing to do and you're going crazy with boredom versus an eight-hour flight, which is just as boring and just as unpleasant. You'd think the second one is twice as bad, and it is twice as bad and unpleasant, but you remember them about the same. Mm. You know, a wonderful two-week vacation and a wonderful one-week vacation, you get home, it doesn't matter one was twice as long, you remember it the same. But now you get to the really weird part, which is when assessing the, the quality of experiences, we tend to judge the peaks and the endings. Yeah. And so Kahneman did some really amazing studies. He did it both in a lab and also with people experiencing colonoscopies. This was done a while ago, and colonoscopies were actually quite painful. So he gives people a painful experience that ends on a very painful part, and it stops and says, you're done. Then he gives another group exactly the same experience, ending on exactly the same high degree of pain, and then he adds some mild pain. So the second one plainly has more pain. It's the mm. same pain as the first one, plus some more. Then he asks people, what do you prefer? And people say, oh, the second one was much better, because it ended on a more pleasant note or less less yeah. painful note it it leads to the bizarre fact that if you're having a painful dental operation and then it just ends and the dentist says fine you're done you could go home you say could you give me a little bit of mild pain so i remember this better and it's just perverse yeah and over, overall kahneman says your judgments of your day-to-day -day pleasure and pain you could do this in a different way by giving people an iphone app that beeps at random times and people say how happy they are, how sad they are, will differ from your remembered judgments of what kind of life you live. And then there's a big debate in psychology and philosophy too, which is, what do you want to maximize? Do you want to maximize the sum total of pleasure you have in your life? Or do you want to maximize how, when you look back on your life, you experience it? Kahneman famously says, uh, remembered happiness is what should count. 
It's sort of, he says, it's what people really take seriously. Well, other people like uh, my friend Dan Gilbert says, it's experience that counts. Mm. Yeah. And, and so Danny uh, famously decided that you really can't reconcile these two different modes. The, the person you're talking to when you're asking someone about their life is always the the remembering self who's making a global judgment about how good the vacation was or how good life is, how you know, how satisfied, how meaningful. And then you when you compare that to the experience sampling mode of the person who just gives a quick rating of their level of well being at random points during the day, when you give them a, an app to do that, it's just they're two totally different measures. And I think the way Danny phrased it at one point with me was that um what people really want, I mean, in the end, we, the, the way people go about their lives so as to live the, the most meaningful, satisfying lives is that w- what they want are good future memories. You want to live in such a way yeah. so that when we ask you in the future, how happy were you with the last year, decade, life, that person says, oh, it was, I wouldn't change a thing, right? Even though that's just one moment in time. And, um, I've never bought this analysis. I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying his findings. I think um, this seems clearly true of us empirically that there's a disjunction here. But I think something close to what Dan Gilbert imagines should be possible, that you should be able to just sum the area under the curve, recognizing that the the remembering self is none other than the experiencing self in one of his or her modes or one of his or her moments. And it just, it's different in that it has a different salience. And it is what always comes online when you ask a certain kind of question for a person. And the crucial bit to integrate is that the answer that you're able to give to that question, whether, you know, prompted by someone like Kahneman or just to yourself at, when you wake up at four in the morning and you're thinking about your life, that ability to answer that you're satisfied or that you wouldn't change a thing has further effects on the rest of your experience, right? It's not truly an isolated moment. It has, it matters that whenever you find yourself in conversation with someone and they say, well, so how's it going? How's your life? How's your family? That that conversation feels a certain way and it has a, it changes your status or perceived status. This sense of satisfaction builds or erodes depending on how those conversations go. And so I just think it's, it's not, I mean, but it, it, it's happening nowhere else but in the timeline of your experience. It's not you're, not, you're not on some other planet for those moments of conversation. So it's, anyway, I don't know if you um, are sympathetic with that, but it seems to me that they can be married. I, I, I like the argument. I actually talk about Dan's work quite a lot in my book. And, and I end the book later on, you know, with, with a discussion of exactly that scenario, he offers the example of a swimming pool. And you spend, you know, 95% of your time just lying in a swimming pool, you know, drinking pina coladas and feeling great. And then 5% of the time you look back and say, my life is a waste. I've just been wasting. I think this has no value. And the way he would put it is, well, that's 95% happy and 5% miserable. That's pretty good math, actually. That's, you know, better than most lives. So stick with it. I don't. Yeah, that, that that's crucially different from what I'm. Feel free to press on and and uh, criticize that view. But there's a few wrinkles there that I would. I think I'm going to agree with you that 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 doesn't capture what I'm after. 
So how far are you willing to go? So there's a view, which I think Dan holds, because he, he told me he holds it, which is, you know, a, a sort of straightforward hedonism, which is we think there's something about um, the experience of saying, oh, my life is a waste and I wish I was helping people and it's, I don't have any purpose. We think that's sort of a different kind of motivation than the motivation that makes us want to lie in the pool. Mm-hmm. But it's all the same. It's all pleasure. Right. And so the, all, all altruism is, in fact, some kind of self-gratification. That's right. I mean, Dan doesn't make this argument, but I've heard it enough. I've, I've made a lot of, of uh, I've done a lot of work looking at moral motivations and why we sometimes do good things to each other and cruel things to each other. And I think there's very strong evidence that we have more, honestly, moral motivations. We don't just want to um, yeah. impress others. We really want to do, do good stuff or sometimes bad stuff. But the hedonists will push back and say, well, you know, when you, when you um, give up a really pleasant afternoon to go visit a sick friend in the hospital, you think you're doing it because you care about the friend, but really you like the buzz you get from doing it. And, or, and you, or you want to avoid the pain, the guilt of not doing it. Well, there, there is truth to that, but that, that's not as deflationary as I think a hedonist would allege. I mean, so the, the buzz you get you know, another word for that is, or potential words for that is, uh, are, are love and compassion and connection and, you know, it's friendship. You know, it's like, if it, depending on the circumstance, that's some of the good stuff in life that you, yes, you, you can say you want it selfishly, but it's a wise form of selfishness. It's not just another hot fudge Sunday. You know, there's no regret component. Like, there, there's a kind of hedonism that is, by its very nature, superficial, and therefore, when you look back on it, it doesn't really survive scrutiny. Like you, you, it's very easy for someone to run the argument that okay, you're, you've wasted your life. All you did was stay in a swimming pool the whole time. Really, the whole time. I don't care how perfect the temperature of that pool was. There was more to life than that. And yet, you wouldn't say that of someone wouldn't say, oh, all you did was surround yourself with people yeah. who you deeply loved and cared for and you made their lives better and you prioritized minimizing human suffering across the board and you became famous for your compassion and millions of people said you were their hero and, and you had this virtuous circle where you know everything was aligned in your life and you, there was no possibility of hypocrisy and what you were like behind closed doors was every bit as noble as, what, as how you seemed to be in public and oh yeah, you just wasted your life. Exactly. I- I mean, there, there's two separate objections you could make. First is, is what you alluded to earlier, which is, you know, suppo- suppose you say, uh, you know, suppose you spent the afternoon visiting a sick friend and it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of fun. But afterwards you said, well, I feel good about it. I did the right thing. You know, first, why do you feel good about it? Well, you feel good about it because you, you want to do good things, because you have a motivation to do good. You, you recognize its value. And that's what drives the pleasure. It's not the same pleasure as, biting into a sugary treat or having a pool the right temperature. And I think second, and this is maybe a deeper objection, is as a motivational theory, this is often simply mistaken. We both have kids and we want our kids to flourish and be happy. And sometimes it's a lot of suffering for us to do so. It's a lot of work. Maybe, you know, you miss out on things you want to do. Maybe Hmm. your child's going through a difficult time and you're struggling with your child to help out. And if some psychologist was to say, well, you're really just doing this because you get a pleasurable buzz from doing it. I think you're right to say that's ridiculous. 
Well, you're well, doing it doesn't because the, you, know, does, you, you value certain things. But doesn't the research show, I mean, I think this goes to Dan Gilbert's research specifically, that basically parenthood is a, is a net negative for almost everybody for a very long time. I'm like, I don't know, I forget what the time course of you know, recovery period is here, but don't you basically have diminished happiness for many, many years reliably becoming a parent? You know, it's complicated. So yeah, there's, there's some work still done by, by Danny Kahneman finds that if you use a beeper with parents mm. and it beeps randomly when they're with their kids, despite what they'll tell you, they're kind of miserable. Mm. And, you know, being with kids ranks somewhere around, you know, menial housework and far below things like interacting with friends right. or you know, having sex or having a good time. And this research finds that uh, non-parents, sorry, parents are worse, have it worse than non-parents. Other research, which, which Dan like, loves to describe, looks at marital satisfaction when you have kids. And the idea is you start off very happy before you have kids. You have kids, satisfaction drops. You have more kids, it drops more. Mm. Your teenagers is at the bottom. And then they start to leave the house and your happiness rises and rises. Right. He has this line saying, um, the only sign of empty nest syndrome is increased smiling. Right. <laughs> but, wait, wait, this, is, but, this is Kahneman or Gilbert? This is Gilbert. Uh, this is Gilbert. Yeah. Kahneman's nowhere near as funny. Brilliant, yeah. but nowhere near as funny. But it gets more complicated. So other studies since then have found that it depends who you are. Fathers tend to be happier with parenthood than mothers. Mm. Older people, happier than younger people. And there's an enormous country difference where countries that have a lot of child support, um, the Scandinavian countries mm -hmm. and so on, for them, parents are actually happier than non-parents. The country, out of out a survey of 22 countries, where there's the biggest happiness blow to having kids, for one reason or another, is the United States. So even if you're just a hedonist, and I don't think you should be just a hedonist, even if you're just a hedonist, it's kind of complicated how you're situated yeah. whether or not to have kids. Yeah. But yeah. I think in the end, when you ask people, well, this, you know, when you ask people, do you regret having kids, even on a private survey? People say, no, greatest thing in my life. And here's where you might jump in and say, well, this could be a case of self-delusion. To, to say this biggest thing of your life, which caused so much, so much transformation, some of it negative, was a bad thing, a mistake, maybe too much for people to bear. And they might tell themselves good stories about it. But I actually think that when people answer a question like that, they're not talking about hedons, they're not talking about mm -hmm. pleasure, they're talking about other sources of value. Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting because maybe let's jump to suffering for a second because there's something, an unsought suffering, because something clarifying about it. I was thinking at one point in reading your book, I asked myself, I think you were talking about why people seek out horror movies and other noxious stimuli. And um, also those cases where, you know, a bad experience is rated as something that in the end is a net positive, which seems somewhat paradoxical or can seem paradoxical because, I mean, it can be something that by definition you would never want to repeat, right? But you get people saying that they're glad it happened to them, right? Yeah. And, and so I, I asked myself the question, um, what's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life? So I, maybe I'll, I'll describe this because uh, you know, maybe a trigger warning is uh, in order. So I'm about to describe I'm, I'm, something. I'm, st I'm stealing myself. Yeah, absolutely horrible. But uh, 
it's not that I, w- I mean, I, I wish this thing hadn't happened because it happened to somebody else and it was a horrible thing to happen. But I can't say that I wish I hadn't seen it. But there's no way if you told me, okay, you can go, you can see that again. There's no way I would decide to see it again. So psychologically, it's just, it's strange to be in this spot. But anyway, I was, I was on a trip to India and um, we were in the back of a taxi and you know, driving down you know, one of these uh, predictably chaotic uh, roads uh, outside of Delhi. And there was a bus that was at a kind of an odd, parked at an odd angle with the curb. And there was a massive traffic jam and we were slowly passing this bus and people were milling around and it's had all the signs of, you know, something untoward had happened. And um, the bus looked like it had hit something and just, you know, like parked on, on the, the curb. And I was scanning the scene, looking to see, looking, you know, as one does, you know, morbidly looking for the thing that you were you're going to wish you hadn't seen. But still, this is why traffic predictably slows when there's an accident. So I was looking over the scene to see what had happened. And I was, I mean, it unfolded this way. So I, I'm looking, it looked like it had hit a fruit cart. And it was just, you know, the fruit cart was just obliterated. And I was looking for a person or people. And I thought, I experienced this profound relief that there was no people, in, there were no people in sight that had been hit by this bus. And then I recognized in the next moment that what I thought was a fruit cart was in fact a person who had just been obliterated by a speeding bus. I mean, literally, this person had been smeared over 40 feet of pavement. And it was an absolutely mind-stopping vision of just the most awful thing that can happen. And so that's the worst thing I've ever seen with my eyes that was real. And yet, I can't say that I wish I had never seen it, but I would, of course, never want to be in that situation again. So it's just psychologically, it's um, if I had to specify the good that came to me from seeing it, it's the. I mean, I was sitting with one of my best friends. I mean, this is, it was it was a shared experience, right? So this is now something that we have we haven't talked about it often, but it has come to mind occasionally. And it was just it's a kind of corner condition of human existence. It's like it's, it's a kind of peak. I mean, it's strange to call it a peak experience, but it's a kind of peak experience in the sense that it was that arresting. So there's, there, there are experiences of emergency and just sheer unpleasantness and horror that can still, if they're abbreviated enough or if their knock-on effects are not continuous and terrible for you personally, they do sort of go in the column of experiences you were glad you had and you would, wouldn't, would in fact, wish to be without. I think that's right. I, I'm, for the most part, take the intuitive view that unchosen suffering is a bad thing. But occasionally there are things that you would experience that could have a positive effect on you that you would have never chosen to experience. And it could have a positive effect in terms of, you know, changing how you think about the world, changing your, your emotions or simply broadening your scope of human experience. So I think a lot of claims about the benefits of unchosen suffering are exaggerated, but there's actually psychological evidence that looks at people's, the amount of suffering people have had in their life. And it turns out that people who have had very low amounts of suffering tend to have low pain tolerance and low resilience. Mm -hmm. And in other research, they're less kind. They're less able to help other people. There may be something 
to be said for the idea that a certain amount of unchosen suffering, I don't know, builds character, toughens you up. You know, the same studies find that people who report a lot of suffering in their lives also have low pain tolerance and low resilience. Mm. There's kind of a sweet spot in the middle. Yeah, wouldn't you just expect there to be some kind of normal distribution over this where some people, you know, like on the question of, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? I mean, there's going to be a cohort for whom that is absolutely true and a cohort for whom it's absolutely not true? I would expect that. I would also expect that maybe the suffering that does us the most good is of an intermediate sort. Yeah. You know, Nietzsche is as, you know, he, he loves the aphorisms and it's such an exaggeration. Often what doesn't kill us causes us terrible damage we never recover from. Yeah. But sometimes, sometimes the right sort of unchosen suffering could lead to a positive transformation. Yeah, I mean, so th there's so many um, intersecting issues here because, I mean, you, you would think, you know, as uh, Danny Kahneman thought, early in his career that you should just be able to aggregate this stuff in a, in a straightforward way. But we know that there's so many um, other variables. There, there are framing effects where basically the same experience can be good or bad, depending on how you conceptualize it. I mean, this is obviously Shakespeare got here first. What's the actual quote? There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, so there's that, and there's also just this asymmetry between pain and pleasure or happiness and suffering, which is the, the bad, commensurately bad things are, in fact, incommensurable with, with the good things. And uh, even just the, the order of things matters. We weight loss as more significant than gain, even when we're talking about the same thing, right? which is to say you, you, you know, you, people care more about losing $100 than gaining $100. So how do you recommend that we start doing the arithmetic in our own lives as we're trying to figure out what's important, what should supersede something else, what sacrifices are worth making, how much meaning-making struggle is a good idea versus just you know, an expense we, we shouldn't actually be paying when we, you know, really should, we'd be wiser to be in, in the big warm pool with Dan Gilbert. <laughs> How do you think about these things for yourself? I, I think that's the hard problem of life. You know, if we're motivational pluralists, which I think we are, and we want many things, then there's the question of how to trade them off and, and how to determine the relative value. And it's a question that can't be ducked. At every point, we have to decide whether to sort of, you know, lie on the couch and watch Netflix or visit the sick friend or, I don't know, read up on astronomy and learn some facts we didn't know. You can stand on one leg and watch Netflix and just kind of get both <laughs> going at the same <laughs> time. Yes, you could do, uh, you could do Netflix while, uh, while doing push-ups or something mm. and uh, just get everything all, all worked out. But yeah, we, you know, there, there's a certain balance and people choose different sides of this balance. I like, um, there, there's a, a wonderful thought experiment by the philosopher Nozick of an experience machine yeah. where they, they plug you into a machine and you live a rich, full, happy life that's not real. It's the matrix, basically. And Nozick says, well, nobody would want to choose to go into the machine because the problem with the machine is you think, I don't know, you think you have a rich, fulfilling relationships and people who love you and climbing Mount Everest and solving world hunger. But it's just an illusion. It's just a dream. You're not doing anything. You're a blob. And then Nozick says, who wants to be a blob? 
And I share Nozick's intuition. I'm actually curious whether you do too, that I wouldn't want to get plugged into the machine regardless of how much pleasure it gives me. But I got to admit, I've been asking students, undergraduates, graduate students about the experience machine for a long time. And a substantial number of them, I think I'm getting to now more than half, mm. say, yeah, I plug in. Yeah, well, it's also interesting when you consider it from the other side, because, and this is something you, you do in your book, when you, when you try to disentangle it from status quo bias and uh, right. imagine you're, you're already in the machine and now you're, you're being lifted out and you're consulted, you know, do you want to go back to that supremely happy fake life? that you just thought was real for the last 50 years. And um, viewed from that side, you could see more people wanting to plug back in if they realized the thing that they had, had been enjoying so much, you know, is what they're returning to. It really shook me up when I read about the, the case where they switched uh, the priors, when they switched the, the status quo, because I was definitely a no machine mm -hmm. kind of guy. And then if I, you know, I wake up, boom, all of a sudden there's a flash and I'm sitting in a room and some technicians are saying, you know, you've been in the machine for 10 years. This is your annual. We take you out and we, we say, you know, do you want to go back? And if, of course, if you go back, we wipe out your memory of this experience. You think it's a real life, but it's just an illusion. And I think back, imagine thinking about my children and the people I love and the projects I'm engaged in. And I feel, would feel this wave of, of horror that it was all, all nothing, mm -hmm. just a dream. But I think I'd want to go back to them, back, you know. It, it, I have too much attachments to think of cutting myself loose, even if they turned out to be imaginary. Well, and certainly uh, most people have had this experience of wanting to get back into a dream, right? Like you wake up from yes. an incredibly fun dream and you wish you could just close your eyes and just jump back in. In fact, I, you know, I think once or twice in my life I've managed to do that. And so that's, you know, obviously you're not committing for the, the rest of your existence to do that, but it's, you know, people have, they, they show a, a certainly a, w a willingness to be diverted as pleasantly as possible by something they know isn't real, you know, not for their entire lives, but for a surprising portion of it when you count all the time we spend vicariously going on adventures with others through fiction and film and television and all the rest. That's right. So to go back to your question, how do you balance all of this? The answer is you don't give pleasure zero. I, I've, I've encountered a lot of people who are hedonists and they say, look, there's just, you know, a one word answer to what people want and it's pleasure. And I don't agree with them, but I also don't agree with people who say, eh, it's all about meaning and struggle and purpose because pleasure has some value. It has some intrinsic value mm -hmm. and it has some value as part of a good life. I mean, to, to go back to your question also about all of these biases and uh, negativity bias and order bias, I think, and, and how do we cope with this? You, you could take it in a bit of a different direction and, and say, whatever problems these pose, they're also a source of fun. So in a part of my book where I talk about suffering as a source of pleasure, part of this involves playing with these biases. So you might give yourself a bad experience, like a very hot bath or a sauna or spicy food in order to get pleasure from the relief when that goes away. It's a very sort of mm. common human pleasure. You may enjoy the mastery of control pain. You may enjoy the rhythm. So um, give an example of revenge films. You must have seen John Wick. Uh, I've seen one of them or, or most <laughs> of one of them. Yeah. So I get, I get that, the gist. That, yeah. 
I, I think you got the gist. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the first one, he's a retired assassin. And then early in the movie, um, some Russian mobsters he has a run-in with kill his dog. And it's very sad. Yeah. And then the rest of the movie, he takes his revenge. That's, which how, is that's how you know they're really evil. Killing the family is not enough. If they have to kill the dog, and then you, and you know right, they're really going to deserve what they get. Right. So you, so you feel, right, if they simply kill some people <laughs> towards the end of the movie, you say, isn't this excessive? But it's not excessive at all, as John Wick must have killed 100, 1,000 people. You feel, yeah, well, it was a dog. Yeah. They had it coming. And this movie has a rhythm to it. And it's sort of a classic rhythm for many, many movies and many stories, which is bad thing than good thing. And if you were sort of so foolish to think, wow, this would be a better movie if you took out that sad part of the dog. Well, you can't have the good part without the bad part. You, you, you know, the revenge mm -hmm. films have to have the bad act so we feel so justified and so happy when the good stuff comes. Yeah, well, it, there's... A direct analogy to life, too. This is kind of back to Kahneman and the peak end rule, or I guess just the end rule. The order of things matters. I mean, we, we feel like a bad thing followed by a good thing redeems the whole enterprise, whereas a good thing followed by a bad thing is a catastrophe. That's right. There's, there's a rhythm of the lives we want. Psychologists have asked people, you know, questions like, how do you want your life to go? And people want their lives to get better and better. Um, there's something called a James Dean effect, where people really love lives that end on a high note, as opposed to most of our lives, which kind of peak out at a certain point, and then often the last few years aren't so great. And people, even if those last few years are happy, still, it's better to end on a high note. Or take a more local case. Take a, take a, a job you work at for 10 years, and each year your salary goes up a bit. Forget about inflation. Mm -hmm. I just mean absolute amount. Your, your right. salary goes up a bit versus you work on a job for 10 years and each year your salary drops. But suppose it turned out that the math was such that in a dropping case, you actually made overall more money. Mm -hmm. Still, people say, well, that sucks. I want things to get better. Yeah, it, it, is, it really is interesting because I mean, I, I, I'm always tempted to take the step further back and say that, okay, our, our default reactions to these parameters are very likely wrong, and we could, we should be able to subsume even those with a a wider view still, which corrects for them. So I mean, like once you understand the asymmetry between loss and gain, and that it's not strictly rational that you should you should care about a hundred dollars exactly a hundred dollars worth, right? And it shouldn't matter whether it's going into your wallet or coming out of your wallet. Yeah. Then you should be able to perform that correction for yourself. And even, I mean, in certain cases, uncouple what you deem to be good from, I mean, even, even if you can't change your moment-to-moment -moment experience of it, or even the way you feel when making a, a retrospective account, you still should be able to perform some kind of course correction here. I mean, the, the only place in my life, I'm trying to figure out where this, I've actually applied this, and the only place that's coming to mind is on the um, topic of altruism and, and philanthropy. This is, I don't know if you've heard any of my conversations with uh, the philosopher Will McCaskill, uh, who's one of the, the young fathers of uh, the effective mm -hmm. altruism movement. And you know, so, you know, famously, what they've done is they've, they've worked to uncouple judgments of the, the most efficacious use of resources from the way any given use of resources makes us feel, right? So there are causes to which you could give your money 
which give you immediate good feels. They have, you know, really compelling stories and nice graphic design on their brochures. And sometimes it's a cause that shouldn't even exist, right? It's just a completely misconceived charity that's not, not only not doing the, the good it thinks it's doing, it's, it's actively doing harm in the world. And then you have far less sexy causes to which you could give money, which you can never feel quite as good about because there's just no way to tell a super compelling story about them. But when you actually do the analysis, they're super efficient ways of mitigating human suffering and, and long-term risk. And so it's just, you know, I've just made, having thought about it enough, talked about it enough, and wanting to idiot-proof this part of my life, I've just decided, okay, doing good, actually doing good, is fully divorceable from how I feel while doing that good. And I want to get as many good feels as I can out of it. But if in the end the project can't be made salient enough for us to give me the feeling of heroism I would feel if I you know, ran into a burning building and, and saved a little kid, well, then so be it. I'll, I'll still prioritize, yeah. you know, in terms of resources, I'll prioritize the, the non-sexy, efficacious thing, because in the end, it just matters how much suffering you're, you're in fact mitigating. No, I mean, as, as you know, this is you're you're you know you're talking Catholicism to the Pope. Mm. I, my 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 anti-empathy book exactly. turns on exactly that point that that our our feeling we've we've talked about this many times. And I think we're very much on the same page, which is what makes us happy, satisfied, makes us feel like good people, is often quite divorced from actually what makes a difference. Peter Singer has a great example of this. He says that often people like to give to many many charities, small amounts. Sometimes so small amounts that processing the checks, you know, right. causes yeah. charity to lose money. They become because, a burden to those charities. Yeah. That's that's right. Like, and and for each one, they think, oh my gosh, I'm saving the whales. Yeah. Oh wow, I'm helping the Africans. And they get a little, you know, an example is like going through a tasty buffet and taking like little nibbles from everything. And when you tell people, you know, when you think about well, what really helps the most people, causes the most good, the most bang for the buck, it's often unsexy and doesn't feel so good. And so our moral intuitions, which have these Darwinian origins, which work perfectly well for, you know, for natural selection, for survival and reproduction, turn out not to scale. They, they really, if, if you want to be a good person, they're not what you should rely on. And, and you're raising the same point with regard to our, our temporal preferences. You know, there's philosophers who will tell you it's irrational to value the future more than the past. But, you know, we, we, we live going forward and it matters a lot to Pat. The future matters to me a lot more. There are economists and philosophers who says that loss aversion at times could be truly irrational, and they're right. But from a sort of standpoint of, um, well, if you imagine right now what's the worst thing that could happen to you, it's a lot worse, you know, death, the death of everybody you love, mm -hmm. than the best thing that could happen to you. Yeah. And, and so on down the line. And sometimes it's right. I mean, imagine a coin, imagine someone offers you a coin flip. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this example. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you'll say, but I think I know. Heads, you lose everything you have. Like, you know, all, all your material possessions, you're down to nothing. But tails, you triple what you have. Now, a certain sort of economist would say, well, that's a great flip. You know, the expected value yeah. is very high. Yeah. But certainly, maybe your mileage may vary, but certainly for me, losing everything I have would be far more devastating then it would be good to right. just get a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I would take it. You know, that's just, um, 
I think that may be more a contingency of just where you happen to be both in your life and in, in terms of you know what your resources actually are. And That's right, yeah. Because I can imagine a person just as rational or as biased as me in a different spot taking the opposite bet. That's actually right. If, if, if you're in, in a bad situation, loss aversion is often a mistake. Yeah. You know, when you ain't got nothing, you ain't got nothing to lose. You know, a beggar with a dollar in his pocket is best right. to take the lose it or get $3 back. Someone living a comfortable life would be foolish to take it. Yeah. But there, there is just, there is an asymmetry here. I mean, there's an asymmetry here that, here that's, that I, I don't think you can get around, which is the very, very bad does seem worse. <laughs> it does seem more extreme than the very, very good. Uh, and, and you has, think that's an illusion? I mean, it's possible that it's an illusion, but it's not the same order of illusion that um, ordinary loss aversion is that when, you're, when you're talking about the same $100, right? But it seems to be how we're constructed as minds. And when you think of the, the number of words we have for the various flavors of unhappiness and you know, mental and physical suffering and the, the paucity of terms we have for happiness, and I mean, this is something you reflect on in the book. I mean, just how, how much good art and literature can be made of the circumstance of, you know, of human suffering and human evil and, and, you know, all of the mayhem and chaos born of our failures to have life pan out well. And you compare that to, you know, the, the, the task that um, Dante set himself in, in having to create the, uh, the Paradiso, you know, you know versus... The Inferno. I mean, the Inferno is so much more interesting than the Paradiso that uh, it's not an accident. I mean, it's not just that, you know, Italian isn't good enough for it and English isn't <laughs> good enough for it. I mean, it's just we seem to be wired so as to experience much more, uh, much more variegated downside than upside. That's right. This is why movies always contain trouble. Good movies always contain mm -hmm. trouble because, you know, the good you know, success and happiness and thriving is kind of boring. We, we, we seek out trouble. I mean, another thing which, which kind of was in, on your inventory of the biases and mental systems that cause us to think about happiness and pleasure in odd ways is, is the role of contrast. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the line here is that the brain is a difference engine and how hot or cold water feels depends on, you know, how long you've been putting your hand in it, how it feels to lose $10 depends on whether you expect it to win 10 or you expect it to lose 100 there, there's these laboratory experiments, and this is part of the way suffering can lead to pleasure because we play with these contrasts. But these laboratory experiments where they give you sort of sensations of heat that are kind of mildly unpleasant. But if you thought it was going to be much hotter, all of a sudden, it's not unpleasant anymore. It's actually quite pleasant. And so, you know, we, we could play with contrast or sometimes contrast comes to us and then it just manipulates our experiences in all sorts of ways in ways that maybe a more purely rational creature wouldn't be subject to. Yeah, I mean, th this is where my, um, my Buddhism or my quasi-Buddhism kicks in because it... I, I figured this would arise. Yeah, it's going to come in somewhere. Because I, I just think the, we have a false ideal for what it means to be happy in the end. I mean, I, it, this is something that I think most people appreciate you know, most people who've never thought about Buddhism or meditation or anything esoteric can still appreciate in their romantic lives where, you know, like the, the difference between 
the early stage of a romantic relationship and a later stage where it's more normalized. Many people perceive a loss there, where it's like the first six months of, you know, where it's just perpetual Valentine's Day versus, you know, the, the years of a happy marriage where, you know, maybe not all the romance is gone, but, you know, it's a very different character. The relationship has a very different character than those first few months. I think that the happy marriage mode, that that is much more of the ideal life than the frenzy of infatuation and just leaping from one peak experience to the next that you get in, in the beginning of a great relationship. And yet we, we live, many people seem to live with the sense that a truly happy life is one where you're just, you're kind of leaping from peak to peak. Like when, when you try to sell tranquility or equanimity or peace as the ultimate wellspring of flourishing, that has a very Eastern flavor to it, which I think many people will not be eager to embrace. Because we, I think our default sense is the best possible life should just be something like the best party you've ever been to, extend it as far as you can extend it. Yeah, I think that's, I think within what you just said is a very powerful critique of, of hedonism. You're right. For something like a relationship, there's a certain arc. There's some sort of folk saying that a, a couple gets married and uh, each time they make love, they put a coin in something, uh, in, in, in a jar by the bed for the first year. And then subsequently after that, each time they make love, they take away a coin and the, the jar will never be empty. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, this, you have this sort of natural rhythm to things. But I think it's fine. I read this book. It still sticks in my head. I know, I know the author, but I'm not going to say it because I don't want to call him out. But he talks about the hedonic treadmill, which is a fancy term for what you're describing, which is, you know, pleasure, you get sated with certain pleasures. You, you know, you, you, you get an award and it's great, but then you want more awards and then you want better awards. You, you have a nice meal and it's fine, but then you want more. And he says, well, I have a solution to the hedonic treadmill. The solution is you should keep getting new and more powerful pleasures. Mm-hmm. Tired of your spouse? Abandon them. Get another one. Tired of them? Try polygamy. Tired of that? Well, there's other sexual options. And I'm looking at this like saying, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I do not think this is useful life advice. No. Yeah. When, when can we just put the electrodes directly into the nucleus accumbens? Let's sign up for that. Ultimately, I started scanning for the word heroin because yeah. it's it got to end up there. Yeah, and I do see that. I mean, this is something I, I, I'm sure you've encountered this um, in your travels, uh, if only online. But there's a big, um, I don't know, how, well, I don't know how big it is, but it, it's fairly visible in tech and uh, in certain smart circles. There's a kind of infatuation with um, polyamory, as though this there's been some kind of breakthrough in in human psychology here that makes this the the solve for. Um, all of the uh, inadequacy of uh, ordinary relationships, but it, it just seems me I mean, again. I'm, I'm not. I, I've got no direct connection to this community, but in all of the talking about polyamory, the thing that's being advertised to me more than anything else, because it, the downsides of it are pretty obvious. There is a fair amount to overcome to make yeah. polyamory work for you, especially once you start adding kids 
to this picture. And there's the problem of sexual and romantic jealousy. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like that's first on the list, you have to overcome jealousy. But I think they would say, you know, overcoming jealousy is a kind of self-overcoming that you know, one should do, and and having accomplished it, you're actually a better person, and your your love is more true and capacious, and yes, blah blah blah. But the, the the thing that is being advertised more than anything else, to me, by this whole project is, we're talking about people for whom there's nothing more important apparently than sex and sexual diversity. Right, it's like it's like that is the, we we have discovered you're 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 wearing your master value on your sleeve, because this is if nothing else, this takes so much energy and bandwidth in a person's life. I mean, it's just it is so all all consuming to be designing your life around having something like the maximum number of partners. It's like you you haven't found the stuff in life that is actually better than sex, right? Or that is that is so good that it gives you a reason not yeah. to spend every minute of every day thinking about sex. No, I think, I think that's right. Thinking, of, you know, reading the literature on what makes a good life, what satisfies people, what, you know, what sustains them has, you know, in some way it ends up being a defense of bourgeois values, mm. sustained, deep relationships, family of whatever sort, you know, satisfies you, work, sustained, you know, difficult life projects. There's, there's a quote attributed to Freud, which he never actually said, but it's a nice quote, which is, the things that value, that, that are central to healthy, rich life are love and work. Mm-hmm. And by love, he meant love. He didn't mean sex. He meant love, like deep, loving relationships. And by work, it's not necessarily, you know, a nine-to-five job. It's a project. It's, an, it's trying to make a difference in the world in some way that involves sustained work and effort. You know, as part of a life, it's gonna include a lot of things that that are, you know, it's gonna include sex and it's gonna include rest and play. But ultimately it's these deeper things that I think is a simple of a matter, not a simple matter, but as a matter of empirical fact, make people satisfied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now how do you square, actually one thing we glossed over in citing, Danny Kahneman's uh, contributions here is this famous study that is always misquoted. It's always it's become a probably the most famous half truth in social science that I'm aware of. Because uh, 99 times out of 100, they give only half the punchline, and and to give only half is to be profoundly misleading. And it's the connection between uh, happiness and money, right? So the, you know, what what is always taken from the Kahneman Deaton study is uh, that once you get beyond $75,000, it doesn't matter how much money you have, right? It's like it does not affect your moment to moment well being. But what they always neglect to say is yes, that's the, that was the, the experiencing self, experience sampling, moment to moment well being index of happiness. But the other index of, you know, retrospective ratings of life satisfaction coming from the remembered self, that keeps going up and up and up the richer you get. And that's a very unpalatable discovery given the reality of wealth inequality and uh, given how much of our, uh, our sense of our satisfaction can be comparative, you know, and how much social status enters into this equation. But um, 
maybe let's let's bring these variables in. How do you think about the role of of money and and status and um, these superficial indicators yeah. of accomplishment uh, and and what they what they do for our well being? Yeah. Well, well, well. Here we we're talking about the data and not making normative claims about how things should be. But you're right. Money is deeply connected to happiness at, at every level. You know, rich people in rich countries are happier than people in poor countries. This should be no surprise at all because money could buy things that are relevant to happiness, through tangible things like food and housing, uh, healthcare in many places, protection from predation, freedom to go where you want, travel, the ability to interact with friends, escape from you know, mind-numbing, unpleasant work. But then there's the question of diminishing returns. And you're exactly right, which is when it comes to how people answer the question, no matter how you ask it, how happy are you? How good your life is. Plainly, people who are making fifty thousand are happier than somebody making twenty-five thousand because it makes a real difference. But it continues to make a difference all the way up. In my book, I talk about some very recent studies that ask millionaires, people who have over a million dollars, how happy they are, and then ask people who have over ten million dollars how happy they are, and the richer people are still ten million better. I, who would have thought? There's there's <laughs> stuff you could buy with ten million. You can't really buy one million. You got to think big. But I don't think that that's it. Really, I think what it is is what you mentioned before, which is status. Mm-hmm. It's it's not pretty, but we're but we're primates, and um, where we stand in a social hierarchy is of intense importance to us. And the person with ten million, a hundred million, says. I'm one step ahead of the person with, uh, with less. So it seems to make a difference, not as much of a difference, it's diminishing, but mm. it seems to make a difference even as, as high up as you can go. Yeah, again, it's hard to know what, to, what is true and what is um, an artifact of, in some sense, being asked the question, because you can think about it. It's so much of, I guess this goes for bad things and good things. So when you're asking someone who's fantastically wealthy how satisfied are you with your life? I mean, just you picture someone who's fantastically wealthy and fantastically successful, right? So they're not just lottery winners, but they're somebody like, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or, you know, somebody who's done a lot of things in the world so as to become that wealthy. You ask them how satisfied you are, are you with your life? This is someone who knows that every objective reason to be satisfied has been fulfilled, right? Like it's not like, it would be positively indecent to say at that point, well, I'm not at all satisfied, right? I mean, so it's almost like there's a, a social pressure to say, uh, again, I'm just project. this is just theory of mind talk for me now, but, you know, I have some version of this. I mean, my life is fantastic now, right? So when, even if I'm unhappy for whatever reason, I have no good reason. I mean, barring some terrible thing that hasn't happened yet, to someone close to me or barring some you know, medical emergency, any feeling of discontent I would have right now is something that, that on some level I know is beneath me, right? Like I shouldn't have, I've manufactured this thing psychologically so as to complain, but really if someone sticks a microphone in front of me and says, you know, how satisfied are you with your life? The only decent thing for me to say is very satisfied. And it has the virtue of very, very often being true, but it's not always true. And it's kind of an analogous thing that I think you, you discuss in your book where 
when you talk to people who have had extraordinarily bad things, you know, objectively bad things happen to them, uh, who then say they wouldn't have it any other way because it caused them to grow so much as a person. I don't doubt those stories. I, I, I do think there's, it, it's totally plausible that, that some people really do grow in all kinds of ways from terrible experience uh, and even lasting disability. But that retrospective judgment is part of the machinery that is continuing them on their path forward, right? I mean, like the reason why they've made progress based on that suffering is in part, one imagines, because they're the sort of person who is disposed to look at it as a source of growth and therefore a good thing that they would not change. I mean, Dan Gilbert, who we've talked about a lot here, talks about the behavioral immune system, mm. which is we're, we're much better than we think at bouncing back from unpleasant events. We're much more resilient than we think. Added to that, we're just good storytellers. Mm. My sense, and I don't have evidence on this, is a lot would depend on what the cultural narrative is. You know, I've, I've read enough articles where people say, in a kind of an evidence-free way, man, the very rich have awful lives. Their money mm -hmm. estranges them from people they love. There's an entirely false urban legend that lottery winners tend to kill themselves or become right. depressed. But imagine you read a lot of them. You have a subscription to New Yorker. You've read, you've read all the stories of the poor, rich people. And then you yourself are very rich. Maybe you'd come to believe that you're sad. I think this is what happens. I think it's the flip side what happens to people who, um, who have had terrible things happen to them. They've read enough about post-traumatic growth. They've heard the line from Nietzsche. And they think, wow, maybe there's some growth to come from it. Now, I tend to think that this is just often a story we tell ourselves unconnected to anything else. But I guess somebody might say that, you know, for me to think that I become better as a result of this terrible thing that's happened to me, even if I just think that because I, because I, I read some articles, it's still a good thing. Yeah, well, it, it can be self-fulfilling. I, I think it actually... Yes. Clearly, the delusional version of it pays dividends. I mean, the, the religious version, which is for which I, I do think there is an atheistic substitute. I mean, so the, the religious version is everything happens for a reason. You know, God yeah. has given you this test precisely because this is, you know, exactly what you need to become the person you're, you're, you're destined to become. And it's easy to see how that frames suffering in some kind of optimal way, right? It, but I, I think you can just frame it for yourself with, without the metaphysics by recognizing that, yes, any, you know, virtually anything provides an opportunity for growth. There's a way to become more resilient in the face of a challenge as opposed to merely be defeated by it. It's part of your story of what happened to you in India. You didn't say, Man, I'm going to tell you about this awful thing that happened to me in India. Mm. As you talk about it, you say, well, I think it must have brought some positive consequences. You say you would never wish to have it. You wouldn't want to have it again. But there's something about it which made it worthwhile. Yeah. And it's hard to disentangle the question whether it's actually worthwhile from your belief it's worthwhile. Because to some extent, your belief that it's worthwhile could itself be something that could sustain you and, and make a difference. If, if I had to choose, between, suppose I was very wealthy, and I had to choose between a narrative that said the very wealthy are extremely happy and, and, and live wonderful lives, versus a narrative that the very wealthy will become suicidally depressed, it's a no-brainer. 
you want to choose the good narrative. Also, the, this, the issue of, of um, contrast comes into play here because so it, it, if you're very wealthy, I mean, and it's, this is the kind of the hedonic set point problem, right? It's like you, you add, what, what becomes the kind of the stable characteristic of your life becomes just this new you know, status quo which, against which you can really only notice contrast. Like the, the super pleasant things have a, a baseline of much greater ease and pleasantness against which they're compared when you can get everything you want. And therefore, you, you, there is a, um, there's an habituation to things that you yeah. previously probably found fantastically pleasurable, which um, I guess, you know, th this is, th your unnamed author is responding to some of this, right? Like when you can get everything you want, that you're kind of in an arms race against the boredom that can come with mere repetition. And you have to keep, you know, increasing the volume on your pleasures to get the same effect. That's right. And anybody who's made it to a certain age and has some level of success knows what that's like. I remember when I was starting out in academia, I'd get invited to give a talk and it would light me up. Mm -hmm. I, rem I remember, I think, a slight exaggeration, but, you know, taking a bus to Delaware to give a talk to some bunch of people, you know, getting no money for it mm -hmm. and being like, this it's is like, the best like thing the luckiest in my person life. in the world. <laughs> this is amazing, you know. And, you know, now, now not so much. Now, you know, because I've been invited a a reasonable amount. And now, you know, it, it doesn't give the same, the same response. And I think it becomes trouble if you constantly need to amp up to raise the stakes in order to have a good time. I don't want to be the kind of person who I'm not going to get out of bed unless they offer me $100,000. Because, you know, if they did, what do you do next? J just to step back on something you said mm. before, I did some research with um, a wonderful graduate student who's now, now in industry, uh, Kony Banerjee on exactly the question of beliefs that everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. And in one of our, so we did developmental work, we found kids believe it. But in one of our studies, we got people and we asked them to remember an event from the last several years, either a good event or a bad event, you know, either like, a, but a significant one, you know, getting married, having a kid, losing a, a loved one to a disease, getting very sick yourself. And then we asked a whole bunch of questions like, does it happen for a reason? Did it happen to send you a message? And we tested a large population of both uh, theists, people who believe in God, and atheists, people who just explicitly said they have no religious belief. As you would expect, these beliefs are more common among the religious, almost twice as common. But even the atheists, the most hardcore atheists who would say, you know, I have zero belief in any deity, in any God, when describing an event like, um, I don't know, a car accident, they would say, oh, I believe it happened to send me a message. Mm. I think it's a very powerful impulse, this intuitive karma belief that, that things, things make sense. There's justice in the world. There's a logic to things. And maybe it's good for us. Yeah, yeah. I just think if one wants to be scrupulously rational at those moments, I think you can get everything you want. You know, you can extract the, the lesson from the, the emergency without lying to yourself or, or pretending to know something you, you clearly don't know. And so if you get into a car accident and it doesn't ruin your life, it's, it's then the thing that gets you to drive more carefully and get, or to reprioritize your life. You, know, you, you, you realize you want to quit your job and do the thing you really love to do. 
because time is short and et cetera. You can use it as though it happened for a reason in, in all the usual ways. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, some people in the pandemic were living through what I read was called the great resignation or the great mm -hmm. quit. This could happen for all sorts of reasons, but I like to think that some people are saying, boy, you know, my job is sucks. It's soul numbing. It's a, it's a bullshit job, as it's used to phrase. Mm -hmm. and, David Graeber. And David Graeber's phrase, exactly. And then say, you know, maybe I want to do something more meaningful, more purposeful, and, and they use it as a catalyst. And also, the, the idea everything happens for a reason is not harmless, because it's fine if I, maybe, if I think about it in terms of myself, mm -hmm. but the problem is mm -hmm. we often turn it around to other people. Yeah. You know, you, you, something bad happens to you, I think, well, there has to be a sense to this. Maybe you deserve it. Yeah. yeah. Certainly, that is a bad application of the uh, belief in karma. I mean, just talk about slamming the door to compassion. Yeah, yes. you must have done. You must have been horrible in your last life to have <laughs> accrued this negativity. And and, and and it's it's it scales up because you know the, the world is full of poor people, poor people, and unfortunate people, and diseased people, and yeah. so on. And it's very reassuring for somebody to say, well, you know, that might seem very unfair. It might seem like a problem we have to fix, but. Maybe all is right in the world and everyone's just getting what they're deserving. You know, maybe it's their past life or maybe, you know, maybe it's for some future good. There'll be reward in heaven. Or, or maybe they just are rotten people who have it mm -hmm. coming to them. If ever you were uncertain about the shadow side of a belief in karma, you just have to reflect on how the caste system and, and satisfaction with the caste system century after century was anchored to it. Yeah, not, absolutely. Not a pretty picture. So, uh, in various places in your book, you talk a lot about the role of the imagination uh, here, and, and you think about the um, the other otherwise mysterious fact that uh, we spend a lot of time getting pleasure or getting satisfaction of some form from exposing ourselves vicariously to the unhappiness of others in in film and and literature. We like sad movies and sad books. We really like the scene where Anna Karenina hurls herself in front of the train. You know, it would be a worse book if it didn't have that scene. Sorry for the uh, the uh, <laughs> spoiler. The, spo the spoiler. <laughs> this or, this thing's going to have a yeah, trigger warning yeah, and a spoiler. Yes, if you didn't spoiler alert. If you didn't know the Anna Karenina plot, you you probably are listening to the wrong podcast, I guess. But it seems strange at first glance that we really like exposure to even you know, quite harrowing experience as long as it's you know, in some kind of... Man the truth is, it, and you, you make this point in your book, it doesn't even have to be fictional. I mean, we like the nonfiction version of it as well. What's your net thesis on, on how to understand that? So there's two related, very interesting things you're raising. One is that in some cases, in both the imagination and you know, news and reality, we really relish the suffering of others. We really find it fascinating and, and often pleasurable. The second thing is we like stories that make us sad, that freak us out, that make us cry. I think they, there are at least two factors here at work. One is, is what we always end up discussing, which is we're moral animals. Hmm. And um, because we're moral animals, we like moral stories, stories where good fights evil and bad people get their comeuppance. I point out in a book, I, I, I own two books that each purport to cover most of the world's literature, and one's called Comeuppance and the other's called Revenge Tragedy. Mm -hmm. We really like stories where, where the bad people suffer. 
And we also like stories. And in order to have stories with bad people, we often have to witness the suffering of good people. It's so it's or, or good dogs hmm. in um in a, in a John Wick case. So that's one thing going on. Another thing, and this is a little bit more speculative, is that a lot of what we talk about when we talk about suffering and suffering and pleasure, just is sort of accidents, clever ways in which we can manipulate our world so that pain gives us pleasure. But I think this might be an adaptation. I think we might be adapted to think about bad things. It's more, a, more of an example of the negativity bias. You know, even when we're daydreaming, our daydreams go to the negative rather than the positive. More dreams are negative than positive. Our minds naturally go to, to bad things. And evolutionary logic here might be that obsessing on the bad, either from our own minds or from the minds of other people, is really useful. Mm -hmm. I could fantasize about winning an award tomorrow, but the truth is there's no big puzzle there. You know, I'll say, oh, thank you, and I get the award and be happy. But if I start, what I really need to think about is what will happen if I lose my job? What will happen if terrible things happen? What will happen if society collapses? And what we see in the most popular movies and stories are imaginative recreations of worst-case scenarios. You know, the simplest example, because I seem to be all over the place, are zombie movies and zombie TV mm -hmm. shows. So it's not like, you know, the rise of the undead is a serious concern we should focus on. But that's not what zombie movies are about. Zombie movies are about what happens when there's no police anymore and no law and no government. And the real danger in zombie movies is never zombies, it's people. And it's unpleasant at some level to watch this and think about it. But we're also wired up to get a sort of delight from it because then our mind chugs away mm. at this alternative reality. And so this is one of the forces drawing us to that sort of imaginative suffering. I think there's a lot of learning going on. It's also in the presence of a kind of super stimulus. I mean, this, this is, may have been something we've spoken about before, but I, I mean, I do view the experience of watching a film or television or you know, even reading a book as a kind of super stimulus because you're, you're proximate to, you know, in the case of, of watching a film or, or television, neurologically, you're having a face-to-face -face encounter with people very often in, in extremis and in a, in, in a way that is completely unnatural, but which magnifies the the, kind of the, the nature of the stimulus, because you're, you're, you're totally unimplicated. Like you're, you're, you're able, even able to make eye contact with people, and there's no possibility of you being seen, right? So it's just yeah. this amazing encounter for which your, your genes have not quite prepared you. And, yet, and then you can vicariously explore the extremes of human adventure and misadventure in their company and learn, you know, you're constantly asking yourself the question, you know, what would I do in this circumstance? And then you're seeing how their, the results of what they do pans out. So there is, I think it's, it's learning coupled to a highly unnatural and, and super reinforcing condition. And with reading a book, you, you know, you, you have the super stimulus of, in, in many cases, essentially having telepathy, right? I mean, you're, 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 you know exactly what another person is thinking because you're you're reading their minds i think there is a as unpleasant as any uh, specific product of film or literature might be i mean it could be incredibly scary incredibly stressful incredibly sad there's the learning component and there's also just the the satisfaction 
of, I mean, I guess maybe this goes into the Ernst Becker death denial bin. It's like, it's not me. It's not happening to me. Right. It's like, I've escaped yet again, (laughs) scot-free. It's really nicely put. I mean, you're touching upon a lot of things which simply really interest me, you know, separate from anything we're talking about here. What must it be like the first time you go to a movie? And, you know, most humans, 99.9% of us never had this experience. And you look at somebody full in the face with their eyes open. But of course, they don't see you. Mm -hmm. They're just images. What is it like to hear a voiceover or read someone's thoughts? An experience which, you know, no other human before or very recently could have ever had. Mm. And, and it's just the super stimulus we have created through technology experiences that, that are so much more intense. And we could do this because fiction, imagination, provides a solution to a really tough problem, which is how can we be engaged in extremely dangerous or extremely charged situations and be in no actual danger at all? Mm. And this is what we what we are immersed in. You know, your story of India sounds horrible, and I've never seen anything like it. But of course, both you and I have seen, certainly I have, so much move, stuff on movies. Yeah. I've seen people splattered. I've seen people maimed and, and, and you know, killed in all sorts of ways, in, in movie, even in the tamest of Marvel movies or something. It's just a, it's just a standard thing you see. And... You see it in a way that you know it's not real, so your emotions are not as charged. But you do see it. Yeah. And, and this is, it's such an interesting question to ask, what does this do to our minds? For so many hours a day, we see sex and violence and, and horrific situations of a sort that our minds, under any other circumstance, be prepared to see far less frequently. Yeah. I mean, the question of what it's doing to us and whether it's equipping us to live more or less satisfying lives is pretty interesting. I mean, this actually connects to another topic that we haven't touched that you broach in the book. It's just the, the significance of boredom and its absence and, uh, and the conditions that create it or surmount it. You know, from my point of view, boredom is, it really is just lack of attention. I mean, because, you know, given that it's possible mm-hmm. to go into silence and just do nothing but pay attention to experience with no source of distraction, you know, i.e. meditate. And given that it's possible to find that the most enthralling thing you've ever done, if it's really working, from my point of view, that experiment proves that it can be all on the, the attentional side that the problem of boredom is solved. But in the absence of that discovery, yeah, then it seems like we, we have to rely on the world to relieve us of boredom. And what we have now you know, given the fact that we have you know, smartphones, I mean, I guess you know, smartphones is the crucial piece of technology. But you know, this would be true even just in the presence of computers in in this day and age. We've built a world where we need never be bored again. I mean, just you yeah. never discover what it's like to be left alone with your thoughts if you don't if you don't want to. You know, I thought of you as I was writing part of the book because I was talking about an experiment where um. They get these undergraduates, but they also did it with older people, if I remember right. And they said, we just want you to do something. We want you to go into this room for 20 minutes and do nothing. You have to surrender your phone, any writing material, any reading material, and you can't go to sleep. So just sit in a room for 20 minutes. It's a a funny admonishment. It says something about the 
the nature of our world where you just you have to you have to say listen sleep is not you're going to be here for 15 minutes don't lose consciousness yes you can you can you can kill yourself right. you, gotta, you have to make it through right. and people hate it people hate it they're, they're, they did an experiment where there's an electric shock machine they showed and it's very painful and people say i don't want to do it and then they put them in a room with the shock machine and many of them just shock themselves mm. just because they're so they're so bored and i thought of you because i remember you, you you i think you were telling me or something about that you can spend, you know, a large amount of time just in a room and and fully comfortable and enjoying it, taking advantage of the opportunity through um, through meditation. I, I like what you're saying about boredom because I think boredom is important. You know, an analogy is with anxiety. Everybody talks about people with too much anxiety, and that's a mm. problem. But somebody with too little anxiety, you know, you, you don't find them in psychiatrist's office. You find them in morgues and prisons. Mm. They, their, their lack of anxiety gets them into trouble. Too much boredom could be bad, but if you stripped away somebody's boredom, they lose a motivation to explore either externally in the world or internally in their own heads. And I think that's the problem with smartphones. There's a line from, um, from the chairman of uh, Netflix where he says, we don't compete with other streaming companies. We compete with sleep. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I can imagine you know, the heads of Facebook and Twitter saying, we don't compete with our, these other companies. We compete with life. You know, normally boredom would spark you to go and do something. Mm -hmm. Now boredom makes you pick up your phone. There's one, um, this is a, a, a very much of a lateral move, but it connects to the, the discussion you had in the book around masochism. And, and it's like, what, what explains the fact that we do love on some level, we, we love something other than just pure pleasure, right? There's some forms of unpleasantness, if only to have contrast that capture our attention and we, we return to them. You know, seeking to accomplish a goal, we wouldn't necessarily want it to come as easily as it possibly could, right? Like we want, we actually, right. the, the struggle is part of what we like about accomplishing the goal in the first place. And that seems, there's something counterintuitive about that, it made me think of the pleasure one can take in apologizing for something. Huh. And there's something potentially masochistic about that, or it scratches a similar itch because it's, there is, a, I remember, you know, I haven't, I'm not given to, to living in such a way where I have to, you know, frequently apologize to people, but I, there's a few moments in my life where I, where I really, an, an apology was warranted and, you know, I, I managed it. These are actually cherished memories for me, right? Like this, these are moments in life that were in the totality of my life. On some level, I don't regret having done the thing that I regretted that I then had to apologize for because the apology itself was so important. I mean, discounting the, the harm I was apologizing for, leave that aside. It was an important experience to experience that level of regret and the successful apologizing for it. And it's, um, it strikes me as a, just an e interesting psychologically. And also, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but this is something we see m more and more now in the context of social media. There seems to be this discovery that apologizing from, you know, publicly is more and more a, not only an unreliable way to solve your problems, it's a reliable way to, to 
produce further problems. I mean, so you can almost generically advise people never to apologize publicly. There are certain exceptions to this, but it's just public apologies, however sincere, are now so often the basis upon which further scorn is heaped on a person that is, you really have to be careful. And it, it strikes me as a very um, depressing lesson to draw from this psychological experiment that we're all part of now. But uh, I'm wonder, wondering what you think about apology and how it fits in here. So I'll answer that and I'll ask you some questions about your own apology. Yep. But, but there's so much to be said about apology. And I, I think you're right. I've, I've always been puzzled by the, the, by the, the act of the public apology. You know, if, 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 you know, even in the course of the podcast, I say something unspeakably cruel to you, you know, at, <laughs> I would just, um, I, I imagine what people would expect from me is to go on Twitter to publicly apologize to you, but not only to you, but the whole community of people who I let down, all your friends and your fans and, and all the people who used to look up to me mm. and, and, in fact, and their children and all of the people. Yeah, and, down you know, to the ninth generation. Yeah, down to the ninth generation. And then, of course, the ritual is then immediately people say, well, first thing, you're centering yourself in a narrative. It's not all right. about you. And, and second, that is a terrible apology. Try again. You know, or just, you know, and, and so much of our appetite for apologies, there's a lot that's good about apologies and good about wanting apologies. If you disrespect me, it's reasonable for me to ask you to set the equilibrium right. Something as simple as we're standing next to you, step on my toe by mistake. You should turn to me and say sorry, because otherwise it's like I have no value to you. But there's this ugly impulse behind the demand for apologies, mm. which is often we want to debase you. We want you to humiliate yourself. And you know, the more humiliation, the better. I forget which case there is, but there was a college president who, himself Jewish, made some remarks that people perceived as anti-Semitic, and they demanded an apology. And there's a long list of demands that went with it. And one of this, them was, the apology should be written in pencil. And there's something deliciously Maoist about that, mm -hmm. that let's, let's make him sit and scratch out an apology on a piece of paper <laughs> to, be sure that he's, that, that, to be sure that he's demeaned mm. properly. But there are good apologies. Not and as I demeaning as writing in crayon. That would yes, they should, or, or, or blood, <laughs> yeah. I guess. They could have gone to that. Yeah. Um, you know, give it, give it a few months. And so, so you're right. The, the public apology on social media is a very, a very weird ritual. And I often, so often see it as unsuccessful. And while the apology to the person you wronged is a very different thing, and that's, I think, a, a moral and just act. I can think of a lot of ways, reasons why you might have found your apology to be satisfying. And I want to sort of do a bit of a deep mm -hmm. dive. One is that apologizing is a good thing. And, yep. and it's satisfying to do something good. Another one is it could have been the sort of apology you were given could have been a new experience to you. And even unpleasant experiences, if they're new, carry a sort of joy. Mm -hmm. It could have been in some way, I don't want to be cynical, but, but a mark of um, could have made you feel good about yourself, of your status. Say, look, look at me. I didn't have to apologize, but here, here's what I'm doing. I'm a good guy. So where do you, where do you think the positive came from? Well, I, I can't totally disentangle it from the, the effect it had, right? So it was a successful apology in that the person I was apologizing to really seemed to accept it and that it mattered that I was apologizing, 
right? So that you, I can imagine an apology that delivered in precisely the same way, but that it, you know just it just bounces off because the person's still angry or aggrieved in whatever way, and, and it's just that would color the experience. I can imagine, but it was more. I mean, this yeah, it did. It was certainly new. You know, I was probably twenty-one or so when I made this apology, and it was for the way I had treated a, a high school girlfriend after a breakup, right? I just I had just been a, a total jerk. And who I became as a 21-year-old recognized it in a way that was, you know, really lacerating. And so, I, you know, when I, when I saw her for the first time in, in some years and was able to, you know, just basically the apology was more or less my performing an, an an exorcism on my prior self, like I mean, it was just like I was just stepping out of the continuum of uh, psychological continuity that uh, connected me to that jerk who uh, had broken up with her, and just made a full disavowal of how I had behaved. You know, I just found it completely unacceptable, and so just to be able to sort of close that door to a former self who I no longer wanted to be, you know, and, and to have that matter to the person. Yeah, it was a, it was a big deal. I mean, it was, it was a comparatively kind of a brief experience. It's not like we spoke for hours and hours about it, but it was just, it was like a, you know, the psychological equivalent of, of ripping a Band-Aid off, and it really mattered. The, the way I felt after it was off was just, you know, it was quite freeing. Huh. So, yeah. It, it it has a certain thing to that that you were apologizing for a person you no longer felt you were. I think a lot of the times people apologize, they can't be confident. But they can't. They be don't a, have that. They can't be confident. Distance. They won't be that person next week. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. You know, but that's interesting. I I gotta say, there's people who have put together lists of what an apology should be, and. The fact that you got so much satisfaction out of it, there's nothing wrong with it. It sounds as totally justified, but I could imagine that sort of stripping the apology of its value to sort of the person you're apologizing to. Yeah, I get there's some version of that that I can understand, but it was really just a, it was a fully seeing myself from the other person's side and being horrified by that, that view. In my experience, it was, was really an ability to, you know, for the first time, you know, step out of who I was in that drama and just see it from, if not precisely her side, some side that certainly could take her, you know, yeah. her, you know, moral weighting of any difference of opinion there. And it was just, wow, okay, let's kill that guy together, right? I mean, that, that was just, yeah. you know, we, what we need here is a human sacrifice. And, it was just so satisfying to no longer be that person and to be able to acknowledge just the debt, you know, essentially, that I owed this other person and, you know, my inability to repay it, but for just, just confessing the acknowledgement yeah. of it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, this, this comes back to sort of where we started, where the, I don't view the pleasure principle here as being deflationary in the way that kind of a narrow casting of hedonism would suggest. It's just, yes, compassion and unconditional love are also incredibly pleasant. They're the most pro-social emotions, I think we can name, 
but they're also among the most pleasant psychological states of mind we can find. So to be wisely selfish is to inhabit those super pro-social states more and more, if you can. And so I, I really don't see a, a tug of war between those particular pleasures and the classic mode of you know self-sacrifice or self-transcendence or you know something that would would seem to be its opposite framed differently. No, that's right. You describe it as a positive experience with positive emotions, but you know it's not like you apologize and said, "Oh God, I feel terrific. That was so no, much fun." No, I wish yeah, I wish you could do it yeah, again. Fun, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 you're right. There, there's you know there's a real sort of cloying and um, maybe you know saccharine finding from the happiness literature, but it's true, which is um, helping others tends to make people happy. There's some some nice work by Elizabeth Dunn and her colleagues where it's very simple, actually. You, you give people $20, and for half of them, you say, buy something for yourself. By the end of the day, I will expect you to buy something for yourself. And then the other half of people, you're given $20, and you're told, get something for somebody else. And reliably, the group that's told to use the money in a positive way feels better. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah that's really unsurprising. But um, it's amazing that we don't draw the obvious lesson from that. You know, it's like that's right. And and I, I to some extent, that's sort of a moralist. I think that psychologically, there's cases where being good is its own reward and doesn't actually make you feel better in any simple sense. But but there's a relationship between morality and say positive feelings and it couldn't have been otherwise if if mm-hmm. if we are going to be wired up to do good things it stands to reason that we find reward in doing these good things well paul i'm very happy you're doing the good things you're doing and uh <laughs> they have the virtue of both being good and uh being very interesting and some of them are in book form so i recommend that people get your uh, your current book uh, the sweet spot because we have we've not covered all of it but uh, before I let you go, tell me what you're, what you're doing next. Do you have a, 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 another topic in mind? Do you know what your next book is going to be? You know, I'm involved in different projects, but something which really excites me, and it might be a book or a long article or something, I'm interested in perverse choices. Hmm. I'm not, th- these are choices. They're not cognitive mistakes. They're not cognitive illusions. They're cases where we know the right thing to do is X, but we decide to do Y. And, you know, and, Having made a few of these in my life and watched others make them, I've decided it sort of want to do a deep dive into it. Mm. Oh, that's great. So can you give me a, an example or two of, of a perverse choice? <laughs> well, one starting point is, uh, well, Agnes Callard, who's a philosopher, mm-hmm. tells a story of how she, she went up to a country road and lay perfectly still on the yellow line. And had felt cars zoom past, <laughs> and 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 she knew how dangerous this was. Oh my! But God. she just said, in part, she did it because it felt stupid. Oh, I I I don't know Agnes, but I having followed her on Twitter for a while, I I get the sense that I I really know surprisingly little about her too. But she's got a great Twitter feed. But I do detect in her that she might not be entirely neurotypical. Am I wrong there? You, you, she's a very interesting person. There's a story she tells, so I'm not revealing anything, uh-huh. of, um, of how she had a, a student come to her office for the course of a, 
of a semester just during office hours talking about classic philosophical literature mm. and nothing untoward happened. They just talked a lot. And then at the end, they decided to, um, to that they, that she would get divorced and they would marry. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. It sounds yeah. like I got to um, get her on the podcast. I think she'd be a wonderfully interesting person to talk to. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I wish you the best of luck with that at whatever length you treat it. That will be fascinating. Thanks again for your time, Paul. Oh, thank you, Sam. This has been a lot of fun, as always. 